Hi everybody, JP here. Every year is unique, but some years are more unique than others. Here we are in early October, just getting ready to kick off this year's interview season for the neurosurgery match. You know, last year we did a great mini-series talking to chairs, program directors, medical students, residents, everyone involved in the match process, and we covered how last year was special. It was a completely virtual process, and that had been unprecedented in the history of the neurosurgical match. This year, it's looking like part of the process will be virtual, part will be in person, but one thing's for sure, it will still be very different than what we're all used to, and we are going to be here to bring you the perspectives, opinions, and advice from those same leaders in the field to help you navigate the match this year, whatever side of the process you're on. To kick it off, we thought we'd do something unprecedented for the Neurosurgery Podcast, and we're actually re-airing an episode that we put online last year. This is our conversation with Dr. Lola Chambliss, Program Director at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, and we talked with her as things were getting going with the interview season last year, and everyone was getting their first taste of what a virtual interview season would be like. We thought there would be no better way to kick off this year's interview miniseries than to revisit exactly what the impressions and the experiences were like as it was happening in real time last year. So without further ado, we bring you again our excellent conversation with Dr. Chambliss and be on the lookout going forward in the coming weeks for special episodes detailing this year's 2021-22 Neurosurgery Match interview season. Now without further ado, let's kick things off with Dr. Chambliss. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Tonight, for another installment in our episode covering the interview season and match process here in the 2020-2021 cycle, we are very fortunate to have with us Dr. Lola Chambliss. Uh, Dr. Chambliss is an associate professor of neurosurgery at Vanderbilt University, where she did her medical school and residency training, after which she had a uh, skull-based and minimally invasive fellowship down in Sydney, Australia. Um, Dr. Chambliss has been kind of a, a voice for all of the medical students going through this process in a very unique season. Obviously, with the coronavirus shutdowns and restrictions in travel, uh, both in terms of online education for neurosurgery students and applicants, but also going into the interview season, Dr. Chambliss has been very active online, both in organizing uh, discussion groups, educational materials and lectures, and now kind of guiding and advising students moving into the interview process. So we thought we'd bring her on the show this evening to give an update on how the interview process is going so far, um, weigh in from her perspective, and maybe some things that uh, you've heard from the students who have interviewed with you thus far there at Vandy. So Dr. Chambliss, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a real privilege to be here and talking to you tonight. So we were talking just before we began recording about um, where Vanderbilt is so far in the interview process. Maybe you could give us an update just for context for the discussion about uh, how many interviews you've had so far, how many students you've had come through, and if they've had any feedback on the process and, and, and how it's structured there at Vanderbilt. Sure. So this year we've opted to do four dates. Um, and of course, all of our interviews are virtual. Um, on the first date, we interviewed our own uh, Vanderbilt students. We actually have seven medical students uh, graduating this year going into neurosurgery, as well as 
the students that we um, we know well because we adopted them either because they didn't have a home program uh, or they did a research year with us or uh, they're a preliminary surgery intern with us. So that was about 12 kind of internal candidates that we knew well. And, um, and they were really kind to help us uh, work out some of the kinks in our process. We are then having three additional interview dates for all of our other candidates. And we completed the first of those last week with another one to come next week and then a final one in January. So Dr. Chambliss, tell us a little about how this year is different. I know that you and Stacey Quintero-Wolf have been sort of crafting how this year could be managed as, as difficult as that might be. Tell us how this year is totally different from previous years. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a, a complete disruption of this typical process for all of us. And, you know, Stacy really gets, should get all the credit on the national stage um, for recognizing how incredibly difficult this was going to be and really wrangling the organized neurosurgery organizations into, um, into agreeing to do things in a very consistent way. Uh, it was entirely possible at the beginning of this process that that wasn't going to happen. And each individual program would have kind of run their own system. And I think that would have been much more difficult for applicants. Uh, so it, it's been great to see everybody really come together in that way. Um, in terms of what's different, you know, I think the, the first thing that we all recognize is that in the past, we've had the opportunity to really get to know a number of students who rotate with us from away. And you know that that has been a fantastic opportunity to get to know people over a month, and really recognize whether or not they fit. Uh, and in the past, we've certainly uh, prioritized some of our candidates that had done a month with us because we knew um, that they were very low risk. And we don't have that data this year. Um, in addition, you know, one of the things that we pride ourselves on at Vanderbilt is our interview day experience. Uh, and when we survey our applicants at the end of the match season, what they tell us every year, year in and year out, is how collegial they realize our, our community is when they come and visit us. And they see how the residents actually interact with each other and how they interact with the faculty. And that's one of the things that really helps us recruit. Trying to figure out how to demonstrate that community virtually has been a real challenge. You know, I can imagine we have uh, the same problem here at Rush where, you know, like most programs in the country, when students come out to interview, we'll go out to dinner the night before, after which the residents and the applicants will, will go out and, and have fun for the night and, you know, relax and get to know each other just as people. Um, that is almost impossible over Zoom or Skype or WebEx or whatever, as you say, um, you know. Maybe you personally, or if you've had any feedback from the other folks in your department, Dr. Chambliss, how have you had um, a chance or, or are there any steps you've taken to try to get that more personal connection with someone over the computer? So I think that practice does make it easier. And if someone had been thrown into this process where we are right now, you know, <laughs> January 2020, they would be totally lost. But we've all started to adapt the way that we interact to some of these new media. Um, I, I find that it is not that difficult to forge that initial connection with somebody if you have a chance to read through their application. So you kind of know um, where some similarities are and call on those early. Um, you know, my personal 
philosophy this year is to throw out some softball questions early on in the interview process, um, just to really try to get somebody to loosen up and, and to find out a little bit just about what makes them tick as a person. So we talk about things like, you know, what is on their bucket list or what they're most proud of in their lives. Um, things that help to get them to feel comfortable and build that rapport really quickly uh, because we don't have time and we don't have any, you know, our usual forms of kind of visual feedback with each other. So, Lola, can I ask you, are you guys interviewing um, one-on-one or is it multiple attendings and one applicant? Like what is the setup at Vanderbilt? It's a blend. Um, most of the rooms, the virtual rooms are one-on-one, uh, but there are some that are two faculty with one applicant or two residents with one applicant. And that really it just has to do with how many faculty were available on which days, frankly, to try to create as much consistency in the system as possible. It's challenging in particular this year, you know, if a faculty member's on call and they suddenly have to run out and do a case, um, we really don't want to leave a big gap in the virtual schedule. And so we have teamed up on-call faculty from various subspecialties, for example, to try to mitigate that risk. Yeah, I like that you're doing it one-on-one. We didn't do that in Miami. I think it was a mistake. I think the one-on-one in a Zoom environment is especially important, right? Because you have too many people in the room kind of staring into this virtual space. I, I like the fact that you you did it that way. I feel like when we had three faculty on one applicant, it was always hard to know who was going to say something. You couldn't really get a conversation going, you know? Absolutely. I think that it, you know we all have to kind of create a new interpersonal style. Um, and, and we're all trying to figure that out as we go. But I agree for me, it's much better, much easier in a one-on-one environment. So at this stage in the interview process, what feedback have you heard from the folks that have done the interview? And, and specifically, I guess, feedback might not be the right term, but what kind of follow-up have you had from them? One of the questions that we've talked about a few times on the show and um, just in in casual conversation, we talk and joke about a lot is all of the follow-up emails and the thank you notes. And that's something that I've heard joked about and, you know, with some exasperation over the past few years as, as people get this deluge of emails. But this year, everything's virtual. And so th- there might be a greater role for that. How have you been advising people to behave in terms of follow-up virtually this year? Well, so I have to confess that despite being a Southern woman, I am the worst person in the world at thank you notes. And luckily, you know, <laughs> my mother, may she rest in peace, is not here to see how bad I am at it at this point in my life. I just, I just, I'm, I'm terrible. And so I really try not to hold others accountable to things that I'm not good at. Um, so I, I tell all of our applicants every year, thank you notes do not matter one bit to us. We we rank our applicants based on how we feel about them in terms of where we think they fit. If if I think they're the best possible candidate for our program and I know they're going to rank us number nine, I don't care. You know, we're still going to rank them number one. Um, so, so feedback from applicants does not weigh in, you know, beyond probably that invisible amount that is really hard to quantify um, at Vanderbilt. And I really encourage them. They don't have to write us thank you notes. And then it's still about 60% of them are still writing me thank you notes. And now I have to go back and respond to all those emails to thank them for that. <sighs> Sigh. So um, anyway, but but I think that that's not the, the important thing to realize is every program is different. And so what I um, advise 
our students to do is to try to get a sense uh, at every interview, and this is the same this year or at any other time, of what um, what the program appreciates in terms of feedback, you know, to what degree that matters to them. Um, and then to make sure that you are cognizant of that and, and following through with what you think that program cares about. What I will say in addition to that, is that if you're going to write a thank you note or you're going to express interest in a program after the interview, be really specific about what you're interested in. Um, it's the, the generic thank you notes that could be form letters are really obvious. They're fine. I don't take off points for that, but it doesn't, doesn't move the dial. If you're really, you know, want to express interest, you've got to be specific about a given program, you know, program of, you know, research lab, a uh, faculty member that you're interested in working with, et cetera. In the absence of that thank you note, or if, as you say, at Vanderbilt, the thank you note or the follow-up email doesn't really affect much, you're going for the best people that are the best fit for the program. I guess as, as I, I find myself doing this a lot, but for a brief two-part question, after the interview day and that interaction, in the intervening period between that day and when your list gets submitted, is there much room for change in a, in a given applicant's position on your list? And if so, can that applicant affect change? In this year, we can't do second looks. We can't do externships, as you said, to show that you're making the trek to a program and you're willing to commit the time. Is there any way an applicant can, after the interview day, affect where they stand with your program? Um, for us, there's really not, and it's intentional, uh, because we want to rank the applicants while they're very, um, you know, very close, very proximate in our minds. So we have that rank meeting for each day immediately after the end of the interview day. That's the way we've always done it. And then we have to merge the lists at the end. Um, so for us, there's not a way to really have a big difference. Now we often will have candidates where we have kind of polar opinions within the department. And, and our rank process is very much democratic with every faculty member having an equal vote and the residents having a very important say as well. And so there are times where we have, you know, a candidate that's, that is really well liked by a number of people, but one or two people had a negative interaction or were worried about something in the application. And when that happens, we dig in in terms of making phone calls um, to the institution that that person's coming from or, or to their letter writers um, to try to get us closer to consensus. That's not obviously something that an applicant themselves would even know or really be able to affect. Um, but as I said, I think I, I think that many programs do this differently. There are certainly programs that care how well, how strongly an applicant desires to be at that program. Um, and so for that reason, I always advise our students, tell your number one that they're your number one, um, you know, when it comes down to it, and you know that at the end of the day, you know, tell your number two and three or th four and five, maybe that, you know, they're at the top of your list. Um, definitely express interest and, you know, use your faculty mentor you know, that from your home institution or your research lab, et cetera, to make some phone calls for you to those very, very, very top places that are high on your list. Um, because, you know, I'm happy to, I'm very transparent about how we do things at Vanderbilt. And, you know, I'll tell, I tell all of our applicants kind of exactly how it works for us. But the reality is different programs have different cultures and personalities, and you've kind of got to hedge your bets uh, 
and and sort of so I think some degree of post-interview contact is still important, even though to me personally, it doesn't make a difference. So can I ask you about that? Uh, because I know you wear lots of hats, Lola. You're involved in the um, SNS. You're obviously at your program, a very important clinician. And you're also the program director, right? So when you're looking at all these applicants, do you consciously try to craft like um, a sort of a flavor of the class or you say we're missing someone who does research or we really need someone who's going to be super strong in a particular arena or interest area? Or do you just say, well, we just want the best applicants overall and we're going to take those people first? I do think that there's something to be said for the idea that, you know, we have very intentional diversity in our program. And and that means, you know, gender, ethnicity, um, you know, but also means diversity of sort of type of resident, right? You know, highly surgeon scientist type versus, you know, community leader type, for example. We're a program that really prides ourselves on having a mix. So, when I see a candidate that offers some expertise or some some really deep background in an area that we don't have well represented, that is appealing to me. Um, if it's something that we think is important, but we don't really have someone doing within our current environment, as long as we think we can support them well in that. So, you know, so there's definitely an element of sort of saying, well, this person could fill a really nice niche for us. And that might move them up a couple of spots, maybe. But um but it's not going to be dramatic uh, because it's a match, you know, unlike where you're sort of accepting a class to an elite you know, university here, you know, you're really, uh, we never are going to get number one, two, and three on our list. That's just not the way that our, our sort of ranking works out. So we're going to get three people in our top, you know, six, one year or 11 the next year. So it's just a little bit too random to, uh, to kind of, game it quite as quite as uh, nicely as I might like to. You know, kind of uh, going off that idea of people filling a niche at the program, this is a, another facet of the interview process that we've touched on before in our conversations on the show, but I always love getting more perspectives on the question. Um, I, I guess putting on your advisor hat again for the, the students in the field right now, um, because, the, the, you know, this episode will be airing when the interview process is still well underway. We've talked a few times about whether the students should try to sell themselves to the program that they're interviewing at or just sell themselves for who they are and see where they fit best. So not not to phrase it whereas one is bad and dishonest and one is just putting yourself out there blindly, but to what extent do you think a student in the field should try to tailor their presentation to a specific program and feel out what that niche is and say, look, I can fill it? And to what extent would you say the person should say, this is who I am and which program will fit best for me? Yeah, so I think I actually feel pretty strongly about this one. The key way to do this is to invest some time up front researching the program. So you've got to know where it is that you're interviewing and you've got to know what their strengths are. Um, and, and to me, that tells me that a candidate's serious about us and, and um, is really giving a very measured look at whether or not they think they've fit and will have a real, much more accurate sense of that when they construct their rank list. So I do think you want to tailor your presentation of yourself to the program a little bit in that 
you know, what I love to hear is when someone says, well, you know, I am really interested in working with Dr. Inglet in his, you know, epilepsy, you know, robotics lab or whatever it may be, you know, it, because it tells me that they've spent the time figuring that out. Um, and, and these days, you know, especially this year, there is so much available on the, online and on social media that programs are putting out there that you've really got to at least look at all of that pretty clearly um, and really take some, you know, concentrate on that. And so I think you could tailor yourself to the, you know, strengths of the program well. You're probably not going to know what their weaknesses are. Um, they're not going to put that on the internet. So it may be harder to say, well, you know, you guys don't have anybody doing X, Y, and Z, and that's what my expertise is. Um, but certainly you can pick up on that in some conversations if faculty are really excited about some particular skill set that you bring. Um, and then, you know, I think noting those things and emphasizing that is certainly wise. You know, Lola, I, I love that you bring that up. We spent the last several episodes of this miniseries talking about it from the perspective of applicants trying to to look good and all that. But in a highlight sort of to next week's episode with Mark Shaffrey, how do applicants, you think, look at programs? You know, we've created content in Miami, and I'm sure Vanderbilt and many other programs have to try to sort of broadcast out the flavor of your of your institution, right? And so you produce these videos and there's internet content and people go and, and scavenge and find this stuff. How does the applicant really sort out the programs? Like, how, do they, do they, you think they all look quite similar from their perspective or do you think they actually catch a full taste of what it's like to train at Vanderbilt? Um, I think it's hard to get a full taste of it. Um, I think we've done our best to try to do that in as somewhat time efficient way as possible, but I think it's a challenge. You know, I think it, it, there are going to be many programs that look fairly similar when you look at these movies that we're making or these day in the life videos. But I think the things you can pick up um, are kind of kind of the culture of fun or camaraderie uh, in some of these things. I think that comes through when I watch these. Uh, I think applicants should be much less focused on the numbers, um, number of cases, number of hospitals, et cetera, et cetera, um, because there's just so many ways to game that and make a certain institution look, you know, like they are, you know, just offering this incredible clinical opportunities when we all know on the inside that that's a place that, you know, doesn't give residents any autonomy or that sort of thing. So I think it, I would not focus on the numbers and sort of those, those uh, metrics that can be gamed, but I think I would look at the um, interactions of the people um, and just the, the flavor of the way that they present themselves. You know, I'll say our department Twitter um, account, for example, is which is our only sort of department social media, um, is run by myself and a couple of the residents. And, you know, it's just it's just not that serious. You know, <laughs> we put a lot of stuff on there about basically what the residents are doing and when somebody wins an award and interesting things like that. You know, but it it's it gives you an insight into the way that we actually interact with each other, which is to say, um, I think it's pretty lighthearted, and uh, you know, it, it's pretty. The voice of our social media, I think, is pretty reflective of what it's like to spend time in our department, um, and I imagine that that's probably similar in most departments. Well, I think not so serious is a perfect descriptor for our program as well. So uh, we're in good company, it sounds like. Um, but thinking about that, I know that um, I was following 
as all of the shutdowns and, and the shift to education online first kicked off this year, I saw a number of online discussion panels or lecture series that you helped to organize for students and residents throughout this year. So I wonder if we could put that hat back on. Maybe if you could offer any advice to the students uh, still early in the interview trail for any virtual do's and don'ts or any faux pas you've picked on uh, through the process this year or even moving into interviews to try to help them avoid stepping in it, so to speak. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, I, I think most of them have heard this by now, but, you know, really having wearing professional attire, presenting yourself well, test out your video so that you see what you look like um, and that, you know, you're well lit so you can be seen. Your background, um, you know, is pleasant and not distracting. All those things are out there. But, you know, I think not everybody's heard them yet. Um and, you know, making sure that you're in an environment where you're comfortable and you can sit all day at your computer and you've got all of your sort of technological issues handled ahead of time is key. Um, doing the research beforehand, you know, like I said, even even more important this year. So, you know, if a program's putting stuff out there about themselves, make sure that you've um, consumed that and taken some notes on it beforehand. Showing up, you know, to all the sessions, um, if there's sessions with the residents, et cetera, um, absolutely critical to be there. All of those things are part of the interview and they're just as important as the formal interview um, interview day. So Lola, can I ask you kind of a sensitive question? And I, I, I always have to ask this, but as a, as a female neurosurgeon, you guys are in a decided minority, right? Although that's, that's starting to change a bit. Do you have any specific advice you give to the young uh, female doctors out there who are applying in neurosurgery? I know it can be very intimidating. There aren't that many role models. What would you say to the, the medical student applying in neurosurgery who's a female nowadays? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I think the, the overall view is very, opti- for me, is very optimistic. Um, you know, there are way more women succeeding in neurosurgery at all levels right now than there were when I started medical school 19 years ago. Um, and that trend is only going to improve. Uh, so it's a great time to be going into neurosurgery as a woman, um, because you're much less isolated, um, than, you know, than has been the case in the past. That being said, it is not without its challenges. And one of the most frustrating things to me that I hear occasionally, um, from, you know, senior neurosurgeons who are male, you know, is that like, well, we've solved that problem and, you know, these days, it doesn't matter if you're a man or woman, it's the same. And the reality is that's not true. There's a lot of uh, particular struggles that women still face in neurosurgery, both in training and in practice. And so, you know, recognizing that that's the case and not feeling frustrated to still feel that way, uh, I think is helpful. And then seeking out mentors, you know, I, I will say until I was probably 35 and, you know, an assistant professor, I had no female mentors in neurosurgery and I had many fantastic male mentors who got me where I was. Um, but for that's, that was largely just because there was no one around me, uh, for women going into neurosurgery now, um, there's a lot, there are a lot more of us out there. So I think be intentional about looking for mentorship from, um, female neurosurgeons that seem to reflect the values that you have. Um, and don't be afraid to approach them, um, especially women in academic neurosurgery. We're used to that, um, and we want to do that, and that's a big part of um, big part of most of our mission. So, 
don't hesitate to um, to reach out and ask for you know some personal conversations and advice. Um, I do that for women and men, you know, in a variety of schools and programs all over the country. But um, but I think you know I'm certainly not alone in that. Uh, and then you know the last thing I'd say is when you're considering whether a program is quote unquote female friendly, which is sort of a term we used to use, but probably still applicable. You know, you just want to see how women have done in that program historically. Um, how many female residents have they had and did they graduate? And if some they didn't graduate, was does that reason seem reasonable? Do they have a female faculty and at what rank are they? And are they moving along the promotion ladder appropriately? Um, you know, I think my personal hypothesis is that we're going to get to a place where we see women kind of clustering in certain neurosurgery programs um, and other programs that still have very few. And I think that that's a potential problem that we as a field have to try to avoid. Um, But I think that that may be reflective of, um, you know, women's, you know, anyone's desire to not feel like an island and not feel like the only person in their their program that um, may be experiencing some of the things that are unique to their gender. Well, Dr. Chambliss, um, I think unsurprisingly, we asked you on the show today to talk about a specific time in neurosurgery in the application process. And uh, nevertheless, we we received some timeless advice there for the young women entering the field uh, this year and years to come. Um, Thank you so much for your time and expertise joining us on the show today. Uh, For the folks listening, Dr. Chambliss is on Twitter at Lola underscore Chambliss. We'll link to that in the show notes. And, you know, I would also like to call attention to an editorial uh, you wrote, Dr. Chambliss, uh, back in, I think, July or August for the AANS neurosurgeon, This Crisis is an Opportunity, um, where you laid out, you know, your your thoughts at the time as we entered the match season, and not just some of the issues that were, you know, anticipated at the time, but even looking ahead to a few years and and more years down the line for how this might change our practices moving forward, both uh, in education and interviews as a field. I really enjoyed the read, and a lot of those ideas came up in today's discussion. Um, So Dr. Chambliss, again, uh, for Dr. Wang and myself and our listeners, thank you so much for joining us tonight on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, and good luck to everybody this match season. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody. 